Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome to episode number 94. Quick reminder right off the top, we just dropped another episode of our Rad Rap series, and we talked about John Waters, a masterclass in filth. We went out to Metro Cinema, watched a bunch of John Waters films from across the decades all culminating in us getting to see him live and we recount the whole thing on our latest episode of the rad rap spoiler free so that you can learn about the movies and hear what we thought about them even if you haven't seen them it was a super fun episode super fun conversation go check it out because it's freaking sweet we watched five smackaroonies this week let's get into them so i kick things off with a mystery movie pick and it was a 2006 action drama sci-fi film children of men it was directed by alfonso coron uh and the screenplay was written by him as well as timothy j sexton uh david arata mark fergus and hawk otsby and it's based off the novel by pd james and it stars clive owen as theo julianne moore as julian uh chiwetel ejiofor as luke michael kane as jasper pam ferris as miriam and claire hope ashati as key Synopsis, in, ni- in, 19, <laughs> in 2027, in a chaotic world in which women have somehow become infertile, a former activist agrees to help transport a miraculously pregnant woman to the sanctuary at sea. What do you think of Children of Men? I had seen Children of Men more than once before, but it had been a while. Mm-hmm. I like this movie, but it's not one I watch often because it's very bleak. Yeah. I've been wanting to revisit this for a long time because, yeah, back when I saw it in high school, it kind of blew my hair back and totally floored me. But yeah, just like you said, as much as I love it, it's really not something I can put on every week or anything like that. It is just so bleak and it it holds nothing back from just grabbing you and pulling you into its bleakness and just holding you there. But 
in me wanting to rewatch this, I needed to find a perfect night because I don't want to just throw this on on like a Friday night. I I kind of pulled that with Come and See, <laughs> and it's like it's it's something you kind of need to find the right uh, conditions for for revisiting it. But I loved it back when I first saw it. And what's your history with it? You said you saw it in the theater, so I think you're cooler than me. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a, a very vivid memory. But I worked at Indigo. Don't buy books from Indigo. Um, buy from your local bookshop. But I worked at Indigo during high school and a little bit um, past high school. And I worked with a, a person who was a little bit older than me and really, really cool named Megan, who was a good friend, but also a little bit of a mentor because she was over 18 and I was in high school. I think she was like 18, 19. So she wasn't super old, but um, and she drove. I didn't. Uh, and she just had great taste in movies and music and books obviously we worked at a bookstore and one night we were working a late shift together and then she was like do you want to go see this movie children of men after work Mm. and we just drove to the city because it was only about 15 minutes away from we worked at indigo at the airport um and we saw children of men i think it was us and one other coworker. i can't remember who though um and it was an almost empty theater but there was this was my first experience with drunk assholes at the cinema. No. Yeah. There was like a, a group of guys might have been two, three or four who were like super drunk, chatting, being annoying and then like left all their beer cans. So we knew that they had been drinking. And this was before you could drink alcohol in a theater. I didn't know this. Pieces of shit. Yeah. I, but I do remember really liking the movie. I remember that more. I think we kind of were just like, ah, annoyed. And then when we when the movie was over and we saw all of their liquor cans, we were like, oh, they were drunk. Um, but it was very much just a, like, I had a cool friend who was like, hey, you want to go see a movie after work? And we did. And that was that. Well, that's cool. What a cool friend. And what a cool movie to see. Sorry about the experience. That freaking sucks. But rewatching this, I'm so... I'm so appreciative appreciative of it because it's such an affecting piece of work. I've never read the book that's based on. Have you? No. One of my um, mentor teachers bought me a P.D. James book that I haven't read. I think P.D. James is quite religious. And in reading about this, I guess there's a lot more um, very overt, like, talk of religion in the book. Mm. But then also a lot of, like, religious symbolism mm. and allegory in the book that that Quran mostly takes out. I mean, some of it's kind of just there because it's there, but he very much turns this more into a story of a big part of its immigration, mm-hmm. right? A big part of it is in these heightened times, heightened end times, essentially, um, how borders become even thicker yeah, and violence becomes more overt and, you know, as a Mexican filmmaker, I think he brings a, a real honesty and realism to that that doesn't hold back in its upsettingness. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think I read that P.D. James was, like, not super happy about, like, kind of the shift in it. I don't think I'm all that interested in reading the book, to be honest. Yeah, especially after... <laughs> Which is weird for me to say. Especially after what you've, you've laid out. Like, I feel like that's great. Like, if that's what you want to take away from the story. And I feel like you can find the symbolism that he's maybe getting at in the book in here. But you have to look a little bit harder for it. Um, 
But yeah, in how upsetting and how bleak this film is, it really rips off the Band-Aid and drops you right into this bleak dystopian future from the first scene. And I feel like Karan just made such a... He just he totally just cements himself as a master with this film and in just how he chooses to present it. So many one shots. It has some of my favorite. It has some of my favorite images and some of my favorite camera work in all of cinema. There's so many sequences in here that are just heart stopping with how powerful they are. And I mean, and he's using I feel like he's using like shaky cam, handheld cam for a similar reason that the first Hunger Games does, but he's doing it better. (laughs) He's doing it more artfully. He's doing it more, maybe not purposefully. I think it's being done for a purposeful reason in in Hunger Games as well. But having that like handheld cam and the one shots, it makes you feel like you also, like that this is happening right now and we don't know where it's going to go. Like it really emphasizes the urgency and the unknown of the future. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the reasons this film for me is so bleak is this feels what the future will be like. Yeah. Now more than ever watching this in 2023. Karan has called this movie anti Blade Runner. Like he's used that term. Mm. Like when you think about so many films set in the future, like a Blade Runner or a fifth element or even like the matrix, like it's so tech focused and this is not like, it, it just feels like our world in a few years, it almost feels more like a V for Vendetta, mm. right? Where, and that's where I see our world going, especially if you look at everything that's happening right now. Like I see increased attempts at state control. I see that like hardening of borders even more intensely. Increase in propaganda. Yeah. Like that, that feels more true to me than us all in levitating cars. Yeah cool coca-cola ads (laughs) orange hair (laughs) you know and i think that's what makes this especially bleak because it just really doesn't feel that impossible and it doesn't feel that far from the future and i mean even think about that this came out in 2006 but it's set in 2027 that's not like someone's watching that movie and and 2027 is within their lifetime Mm -hmm. and now we're almost there yeah right like it's not set in 3005 mm-hmm. you know like it is this is the future that is narrowing towards us faster than we can than we can even really see and i mean we probably will all be infertile in not too long microplastics you know baby yeah <laughs> yeah truly but i feel like he just has such a lock on that and it's it's so powerful it's so expertly crafted it's so tapped into, yeah, what a truer vision of the future could look like. And I think he gets, well, I haven't read the book. Um, I was reading about, you know, and there's a lot of writers on this. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I had to double, double check because like, I was just like, like oh, holy shit. Yeah. Um, but I, on the Wikipedia page, there's a quote from the book that it seems like this is the essence of what Quran took from the book. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's really beautiful. I mean, Seems like P.D. James has a a really strong literary voice. So this is from the book, uh, quote, It was reasonable to struggle, to suffer, perhaps even to die for a more just, a more compassionate society, but not in a world with no future, 
where all too soon the very words justice, compassion, society, struggle, evil would be unheard echoes on empty air. Mm. And it had me thinking, like, is this what is happening in our world as people start to, you know, teenagers at my school, you know, young people are saying, ah, well, I, I probably won't live to be 50, you know, and we saw a really funny, really sardonic drag show earlier in the year where the artist said, my retirement plan is climate change. (laughs) And, you know, like you're just hearing that kind of stuff more and more. And when I think of that, when I hear that quote and I think, so yeah, do people, does the apathy outweigh the attempts for justice and hope and humanity when you're like, well, it's all for shit anyway. Yeah. And this world seems to be getting more and more and more and more and more overtly divisive in a way that we, I don't know if it's just that social media makes it louder. Um, Because I definitely don't feel that when I'm with people. I don't even feel that in my classroom where I'm with very different people. Like it's just amalgamation of people who ended up in a room together. But that seems like the, the cornerstone from which this film is working on. And then having a person who says no justice still matters. Mm. Even if the world is barreling towards not existing anymore justice still matters yeah i it's it's so difficult too because just like while you're talking it just got me thinking about you know the pandemic definitely didn't help with this but also just social media and everything and and personal devices that allow you to access the internet and all this information at any time at any in any place in the world it just kind of further it can be even further dividing for us and just like put us into our own little worlds and like separate us and, 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 and put us in into places that we might not have even thought we would end up. And it can, it can kind of force people into one group or to another group or to join a certain voice or another voice. And, but you're doing it from like the comfort of your home now and you're not necessarily going out and doing anything. I don't know. I'm I'm just kind of rambling at this point, but it's just like, it's difficult and I can see how easy it would be to just kind of submit and just be like, well, everything's going to shit anyway, so I'm not going to do anything or I'm just going to accept that this is the way it is when you can definitely do whatever you want. But that's, it's tough to hear when that's what people want to do. Um, the bleakness was not helped by the fact that we watched this on DVD and it looked like <laughs> yeah. it was filmed on a Tamagotchi. <laughs> so Yeah, the subtitles were like and it was big so, but ugly. It was so grainy. It's so weird because some DVDs just do that. Like it just seems like it was ripped in somebody's basement. <laughs> <laughs> and it just doesn't look good. Um well, you kind of made this comment when we were watching it, and I totally agree with it, man. Like Clive Owen was a guy of a moment. Yeah. In the aughts. Yeah. Like, I feel like Clive Owen was everywhere and I saw him Sin everywhere. Sin City, baby. Sin City, Closer. There, he was in this movie called Shoot 'em Up that I owned and liked, but I don't think it holds up whatsoever. I don't really remember it. But I just remember thinking, like, oh man, Clive Owen, he's the guy. Like, <laughs> go see a Clive Owen movie. I didn't particularly like him, but I'm just like, all right, yeah, Clive Owen. Where is he now? He's. As you said when I asked that, he he has been in stuff. He's also been with his partner for a really long time, and that's sweet and nice. I like that. I always like seeing that. Um, 
I think he's really, really good in this. And we like a Julianne Moore. Um, I like a Michael Caine, especially a hippie Michael Caine. Very cute, very sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I really like about this movie, I know you like all the oneers. Um, I love a movie that trusts its audience. Yes. And I uh, found this quote by Quran that I, I didn't have like the language to explain what I was feeling about it. And then he said it for me. So he said, uh, quote, there's a kind of cinema I detest, which is a cinema that is about exposition and explanations. It's become now what I call a medium for lazy readers. Cinema is a hostage of narrative. And I'm very good at narrative as a hostage of cinema. <laughs> He is very good at narrative as a hostage of cinema. Like when mm-hmm. I think about Roma as well, mm-hmm. um, where the narrative is happening, but it's secondary to the cinematic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it feels more like true to life. Mm-hmm. Like we're just kind of experiencing life through these characters in this cinematic medium. And then by the end, there's been a narrative. Um, He's also, I wonder, because you really like this movie. Yeah. Um, he, he, he doesn't use this language. I'm using this language, but it's a life of pie ending. Mm-hmm. So Quran said about the end of the film, quote, we wanted the end to be a glimpse of the possibility of hope for the audience to invest their own sense of hope into that ending. So if you're a hopeful person, you'll see a lot of hope. If you're a bleak person, you'll see a complete hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very much a like, there's an ambiguity to the ending that can be read in multiple ways. And he wants the viewer to read it in a way that they can then reflect on what that says about them, mm-hmm. which is a very life of pie. Like the ending says more about you than about the ending. Yeah. Um, Go read life of pie. Cause it's very good. You do love life. Of pie. I do. Fucking love but it. don't watch the movie cause they hurt animals. Yeah. That's not good. And yes, Jan Martell is a bit of a doinky doink, but don't tell him I said, um, I was happy to revisit this. Like we said, couldn't watch it all the time, but glad we finally got to talk about it on the show. If you're ready to like have the bleakness of the world reflected back to you. Yeah. If you're having just a night where you're like, I'm ready to wallow in then the double feature Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Children <laughs> of Men. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe watch this and then watch something like Bob's Burgers, like something nice and light to lift you back up. How does this make you feel? It makes me feel a despairing hope. Mm. How does it make you feel? An immense appreciation for its craft and awestruck of its power. Yeah, we went way back in time. Yes. Over a hundred years back in time for a very specific reason to watch the horror mystery thriller, The Captain of Doc The Captain. The Captain <laughs> The Captain of Dr. Caligari. Uh <laughs> the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is directed by Robert Oween or Wien, probably. He's German. Um, written by Carl Mayer and Hans Janowitz and starring Werner Krauss as Dr. Caligari, Conrad Conrad Veit as Cesar, Frederick Fair as Francis, and Lil Dangover as Jane Olsen. Lil Dangover? Lil Dangover. (laughs) This is a Lil Dangover. Move over. Here comes Lil Dangover. Oh, I partied too much last night. I have a Lil Dangover. (laughs) Oh, dang. Oh, that's good. The synopsis for this um, film from 1920 that we're getting very silly about is hypnotist Dr. Caligari uses a somnambulist, Cesar, to commit murders. Somnambulist. What did you think of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Um, well, we were watching this for homework. We were doing homework. I um, I was chatting back and forth with 
a letterboxed friend. We have some letterboxed friends um, who had seen this film, this like kind of pseudo it's, it's a documentary, but it's also got some like cinematic non-documentary moments uh, called, I think it's called Orlando, a political biography. And he saw it and I was like, Oh, that's playing at Metro next month. And I kind of want to see it. But in his review, he talked about how he read Virginia Woolf's Orlando in preparation for it. And that was really helpful. And I'm like, damn, I tried to read Orlando last year and only made it halfway through and never finished it. Then he said, nothing helps me do homework like a deadline. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, God, me too. So same here. I mean, we've had we know that this is a the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a landmark in cinema. Yeah. Very famous piece. But when it came time to a deadline, we finally did our homework. Yes. I will say of all the other silent films that we've seen in the theater, them being Nosferatu and Metropolis, I was a little bit nervous about watching this one at home. And Dante's Inferno. Oh, yes. Pardon me. I was nervous about watching this at home because in the theater, you're just like, you're upright, a little bit more focused, a little bit more intentional about everything. But no problems watching it at home. No and, problems. And actually, this was like this is up there with one of my favorites of all the silent films that we've watched. And I, fi- I think that's because it's creepily intriguing. Yeah, this is. Um, I mean, all you have to do is look at Letterboxd to see like almost everybody's reviews mention Tim Burton. Being like Tim Burton saw this and was like, "Hold my beer." <laughs> um, and for sure, I see like. Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands and And I think it's less hold my beer and more like oh I want to do that too yes yes (laughs) I mean yeah there's very many different iterations of people mentioning Tim Burton in their reviews in funny and thoughtful ways um but in general this was one of those films that I watched that I haven't necessarily felt about other silent films that we've seen where I was like I see how this influenced the landscape of cinema not just Mm -hmm. Tim Burton I see how this influenced cinema as a whole Mm mm-hmm and I definitely, I saw that when we, Citizen Kane is not a silent film, but I saw that in Citizen Kane where I was like, oh, I get, I get this as a landmark moment. Yeah. Even if the film wasn't my most favorite film in the world, mm-hmm. I was like, I, I see the lineage now. And I I didn't necessarily feel that in Nosferatu or Dante's Inferno or maybe moments of Metropolis. Mm-hmm. And that might just be because of, you know, like our genre that we love the most is horror like when it comes to genre film when we're moving outside of just like drama comedy Mm -hmm. it's horror and this is the one that is in that lineage yeah and so i saw the the influence of that on a narrative level on a aesthetic level um and for me of the silent films we've seen this is by far the one i've liked the most yeah yeah and i i think it's exactly that is that it is just steeped in the horror genre and like well Yes, Nosferatu's in that as well. I didn't get the creepy factor. And I've, maybe that's because there's like a a hyper supernatural vampire portion to that. This just felt like grounded in reality in that this is people doing twisted people stuff in a twisted people world. And then there's some just like really, obviously we don't want to ruin the film, but there's some really interesting there's some really interesting stuff going on here in terms of ambiguity and unreliability of narration mm-hmm. that feels really fresh. Certainly not in like that's happening in literature, but you know, for the most part in these other silent films that we've seen, the narrative has been fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
this, you know, so I have, I have a couple really lovely quotes from people. Um, a lot of them talking about how these beautifully, incredibly just like artificial and yet so beautiful sets. Yeah. Create that unreliability and create that idea of like, whose perspective are we from? And I just, people said such beautiful things the, the Wikipedia page for this is so long. I read the whole thing and I'm only pulling a couple po- moments well, from I, it. I, it's been posted since 1920. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. The internet's <laughs> been around that long. Um, so Roger Ebert, good buddy. Um, this is how he described the way the film looks. He said, a jagged landscape of sharp angles and tilted walls and windows, staircases climbing crazy diagonals, trees with spiky leaves, grass that looks like knives. And like that this is about perspective, like whose perspective we're seeing it from. Mm. Um, and the uh, reviewer Stephen Brockman said, quote, there's no access to the natural world beyond the realm of the tortured human psyche. And that just enhances the unreliability or the artificiality, like our, our questioning of reality as we watch the film because it was filmed all in studio and this, these painted sets um, that create this sense of what is real and what isn't. Yeah, and that's what really drew me in is that it is so people-focused and through the lens of people and creating that unreliability and creating that disorientation and not knowing what me as a viewer can trust or distrust. And I, I love that a film of this era was able to, to do that and finally do that for me where I enjoyed the other films, but they didn't pull me in as much as this did. And then this also just has like a really killer twist in it, which. And people have, have talked about how, so both it's a frame story where we start and end in the same place. So like the green mile, um, it's got a twist. And that this is some of the earliest examples of that in cinema. Certainly not in art, but in cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also been variably called by Roger Ebert the first true horror film. Um, a film, I think, historian called Danny Peary has called it the first cult film um, and the precursor for the art house film movement. So it's no wonder this is the one we've liked the most. Yeah, horror, art house, cult film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, check, check, check. Um, but it actually delivers on all of that, right? Like, yes. I don't want to be a buzzkill, but I thought Metropolis would deliver on that a little bit more than it did for me. Metropolis, it had moments. It does. And but like Metropolis, thinking back on it, it has a little bit of like hoity-toitiness to it a little bit. Like, I am smart. It, look how many people I fucking gathered to run up and down the stairs. Fucking sick, bro. What's funny is they wanted Fritz Lang, who directed Metropolis, to direct this, but he was busy doing something else, so he couldn't. But I think he was involved in some of the, like, concepting and, and discussions of it. I Right. I think that he was a an inspiration and, and a voice within making this. Totally. And that's, that's cool. The other thing I was going to say is, like, I feel like we start getting closer to this, too, with, like, Dante's Inferno. Because there's a couple of sequences in there that are scratching like our love of horror. And Nosferatu too, right? Like there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's key moments that I'm like, yeah. And in Metropolis, I'm like, there's key moments where I'm like, that's cool. But I'm not that much of a sci-fi guy. I'm more of a horror guy. So I think that's why Metropolis is like, eh. And Metropolis drew me in with visuals more than it did story, I think. But this does both. Exactly. Captain of Do- Cabinet? Oh, I just really want to. <laughs> the the captain. captain. Captain Dr. Kelly <laughs> Um, I liked this. I liked this. Don't know how to say this person's name. Louise Deluc. 
This is how he describes the movie. Quote, at first slow, deliberately laborious, it attempts to irritate. Then when the zigzag motifs of the fairground start turning, the pace leaps forward, agitato, accelerando, and leaves off only at the word end as abruptly as a slap in the face. <laughs> Fun way to put it. That is. I liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This film has also been, um, it's been studied and talked about as a allegory for um, the German government mm. and a critique of authority, um, specifically with Caligari representing the government and the military and Caesar as a citizen who blindly obeys what their government demands of them mm. at harm to themselves. Um, and then, I mean, we're not going to ruin the film, but there's some very then nuanced stuff with the uh, main character of Francis, right? When you start to think of it in that way of if Caligari is government and specific to, specifically the military arm of the government, then like how does that character fit into this? Especially when you consider the narrative as a whole. Um, and I guess the writers have like said that that's what they intended all along. And other people have been like, no, you didn't. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's a lot of like, it was made in 1920. Who knows what's true and what's not in terms of like the deliberate intention behind the film, but reading in, in that way, I think is really interesting. And so it's artistic. It's compelling narratively. Um, it's compelling cinematically, but then it's also like rife with um, historical and literary ways to read into what the film is saying. And I liked it. I liked it too. It ended up being useless homework. <laughs> yeah but a fun exercise absolutely i'm glad to have seen it because it's just this one that as a horror fan you always hear about it's the cabinet of dr calgary you gotta see it and it's just essential viewing so now we've seen it now we've seen it now we know the captain <laughs> how did the cabinet of dr calgary make you feel uh in awe of its craft and storytelling so pretty similar to Children of Men for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You can ask me. Oh, how did it make you feel? <laughs> it made me feel drawn into the aesthetic and story. Yes. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, so as you mentioned, our homework was for not, but the whole impetus for us wanting to watch it was 
our favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema, was playing the 1989 film, Dr. Caligari. It was uh, directed by Stephen Sayadean, written by him, as well as Jerry Stahl. The, the, the cast is Madeline Raynal as Dr. Caligari. Um, Fox Harris as Dr. Avil. Laura Albert as Mrs. Van Houten. Jennifer Balgobin as Ramona. D- uh, John Durbin as Gus Pratt. Jean Zerna as Les Van Houten. David Perry as Dr. Lodger. And Barry Phillips as Cesar. Synopsis. The granddaughter of an infamous doctor experiments with hormone and shock therapies at her asylum for the insane. What do you think of Dr. Calgary? Wow. (laughs) This is, this is not for everyone. This is not for everyone. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. We, this wasn't really like this was kind of on our radar because we saw it was coming up at, at Metro. And it was a staff pick. And I tend to when they do their staff picks and their board picks, I tend to be. I tend to want to go see it because somebody was excited to show this to people. Somebody yeah. had a chance to pick a film and this is the film that they picked. Yeah. And we like we saw the title, Dr. Caligari. It's like, oh, yeah, very infamous in the world of horror. Uh, and then we started seeing trailers for it. And we we're like, holy fucking shit. So like first thought was like, okay, well, we got to go see this for sure. Second thought was we need to invite our friends Sanford and Alex to come see this. <laughs> yes. Um, They're just like the two perfect people to watch this movie with. Yes. We sent them the trailer and said, is this something you'd want to come see with us? Yeah. They were also the people who saw Dick's the Musical before we did and encouraged us to go see it. And this was more wow, just wow than that movie. <laughs> Um, yes. first of all, yeah, we didn't need to watch the original. Not at all. It had like literally zero bearing outside of a couple names. Yeah. And it like, it showed stills from the 1920 film in the opening credits. And that was it. And it was just like literally to be like, remember this movie and these, this name, <laughs> but that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It, it, yeah. There wasn't even really any like homage or anything. It was... <laughs> It was just its own thing. Um, Jesus Christ, this was horny as hell. Yeah, it was like if Rocky Horror Picture Show was way edgier and more of a porno. Yeah, well, and funnily enough, so the director of this, uh, Stephen Sayadean, this is his only non-porno movie that he's made. Yeah, and like I, I felt that like when the movie was done, I was like, that felt like it was edging on pornography. It's not pornography. Like, let's be clear. It's yeah. not at all. It's like, erotic for sure mm-hmm. in like a horror sci-fi campy way but i was like but it seems to be playing in that world yeah less in a queer camp way like rocky horror picture show our friends were like oh that was so campy and i was like i don't i mean it was for sure i'm not saying it wasn't mm-hmm. but it also felt like it was coming from a world of straight men to me yes I, but that doesn't mean it wasn't super fun it's such a ridiculously fantastical romp. And that isn't for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Please watch the trailer before you go watch this movie because you will know if it's for you or not. I mean, it felt like a stage play. Like in that in that way, like the sets, it felt like they're well, 
the aesthetics of the sets don't look like the original at all. It feels like there is a no, there is a bit of an homage to wanting to create sets and set pieces that feel original in their own way. Yeah, and that like closed artificial set. I was really into it. Like I thought the um the aesthetic that they create in this film is really fun. The dialogue is really fun and it's got some like gross in a good way horror imagery that's also playing on like nightmare logic. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, like some very Freddy Krueger shit. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And in that like it's both funny and horrifying at the same time. Yeah. Like it's 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 both at once, not flitting between the two. Like I think some horror movies combine like we've got moments of humor and moments of horror. This is both together. Yeah. And like the aesthetic of it just kind of shoots me back to like fucking episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Like <laughs> Oh just, my goodness, you're not wrong. Yeah. You're like, like the um the the clown one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like fucking are you thinking the like the funhouse one? Or are you thinking like ghastly grinner? Because that should no, fuck me up. The one where the cigars are in the microwave when it's supposed to be oh, spaghetti. Yeah, yeah. Zippo? Z- Zebo? Zebo. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. one really scared me. <laughs> yeah. And you don't even fucking like see a real clown in that one. Like it's just the idea of this clown. <laughs> it's really scary. But you go to microwave your spaghetti and then you open it up and it's cigars. That's horrifying. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> fuck me up. <laughs> are you afraid of the dark? The like. The opening credits are just horrifying. Oh, yeah. Whoever they got to do that, like when I feel like they got the assignment and then went above and beyond. Yeah, they were like, we're going to take this to 11. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to scare the shit out of little kids in Canada. Um, This movie made me laugh so much. There's like, there's some stuff in it that is a little bit yucky, but it does have some just over-the-top ridiculousness that just tickled my funny bone. And it does wear at times where I'm like, ooh, we're getting, this is long. <laughs> yes. This 80-some minutes is, is long. On, on Wikipedia, and our friend Sanford showed us this after, there's a review that says that this movie is, quote, a weak attempt at campy dialogue and bizarre plot twists that even discriminating cult movie mavens may sit out. <laughs> <laughs> But it was pretty fun, and I have a feeling the four of us will be quoting this movie for a long time, specifically Splish Splash. (laughs) One plunge and Splish Splash. My husband got a boner once. Silly Billy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is not for everyone. (laughs) It is not for everyone. Um, It was on the midnight movie circuit with like Eraserhead and... um, Pink Flamingos? Yes, I think so. I think it was kind of like... It was, it kind of came in after, like those have been playing on the circuit for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like it fits in. Like, oh, totally. It's, I feel like this could be a, like the room or a Rocky Horror Picture Show with a particular kind of crowd. Mm-hmm. Like it could be an audience participation type movie. It was, it was bizarre and, and wild. And it's, it's a movie to watch with like a group of people for sure. Mm-hmm. But it is. Not, Not for, for everyone. everyone. <laughs> yeah. How'd it make you feel? It just made me feel agog at the zany ride. Yeah. You? Uh, a mind-melting giggle fest of fun. Giggle, giggle. Very, 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 very different direction for this next film. 
I've uh, been very excited to watch this for a while and it's been on my watch list for for ages actually and then I was reminded of it after listening to a podcast episode which I'll talk about a little bit more later um, and this just felt like the time to watch it. So I picked the 2020 documentary biography drama Dick Johnson is Dead. It was directed by Kirsten Johnson and written by her and Nels Bengerter and it features a lot of people but our key subjects are Kirsten Johnson and her father Dick Johnson. The synopsis is a daughter helps her father prepare for the end of his life. What did you think of Dick Johnson is dead? A couple things we get out of the way right away. Dick Johnson, great name. Hilarious. See Richard Johnson, <laughs> but also everyone calls him Dick. Um, watching this movie fell on a very interesting day because it was a day I had therapy and I was unpacking. It had been, I only go to therapy once a month. Currently, A, because it is fucking expensive. Yes. And B, I, I currently don't feel like I need more than that. But there'd been a lot going on. And this was my first session actually truly unpacking everything that happened with my Nana passing away. And then also our friend Carlin passing away, both of which we talked about previously on the show. And it was... You know, it's a particularly tough thing just kind of talking about grief and talking about this loss. And then that prompted us later in the evening to talk more about it and and then talking about your dad and talking about family stuff. And then you throw this on and it starts revealing what this movie's about. And I can't remember what I said. You said, Kylie, what are you doing to us? <laughs> yes. <laughs> as soon as you like figured out proper that this was a documentary about like the impending death of her father, but you didn't know yet the reasoning behind the title Dick Johnson is dead. So Kristen Johnson, this is what she says about why she made this particular film. So she says, quote, she had a dream where there was a man in a casket and he sat up and said, I'm Dick Johnson and I am not dead yet. She then asked her dad about the movie and said, Dad, what if we make a movie where we kill you over and over again until you really die? And he laughed. <laughs> and so they made this movie together. And that's a part of the film. I think sometimes like I had heard about this film and I thought there was going to be more of that than there was. But it is a part of the film where they enact his death in various different ways. But then they also show how they created this fake death and he always gets up at the end of it it's just this very it's this very compelling and complex thing mm -hmm. but the underlayer of that is these really honest vulnerable raw conversations and sometimes just goings on of life as her dad and her deal with his increasing dementia I kind of felt at a point in this movie especially by the end, it's like a hyper version of what we do on this show. Well, that was, so this came, this came back into my radar because I'd been listening to Anderson Cooper's podcast, All There Is. I highly recommend it. Um, the second season just started and it's just conversations with people who've experienced loss. And they just, like he said, conversations with people who have lost siblings, who have lost parents, who have lost spouses, um, animals, like like a combination of the above um, and they just chat about it and he had Kristen Johnson on the show and at the time her father was still alive I haven't been able to confirm 
if that's still true, mm. I've tried. Um, and one of the things she talked about in it is that like grief doesn't have to always just be sad. Mm-hmm. That like losing someone and anticipating that you're going to lose someone and also after that person is gone, there can be play, there can be humor, there can be imagination, there can be creation, creativity. And she said like you can create something with someone you are losing or have lost. And in that process, you become collaborators together. And when she was saying that, I was like, shit, that's what we do every week with my dad. <laughs> like, yeah. And some weeks more than others for sure. But that's the impetus of it. And I was like, that's really cool. And one thing that like really jumped out to me is when she first started talking to Anderson Cooper, he had watched the movie and he started their conversation with saying, I love your dad. And I was like, since starting this show and telling stories about my dad, there are people who know him in ways that he wouldn't otherwise be known if I just never talked about him because it's too sad, Mm -hmm. right? Or because it makes people too uncomfortable to talk about death. Like there are people who, who know a part of my dad through what we do on the show. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a really cute small example of that is one of our friends was bowling this week on, and I saw it on Instagram and I said, I love bowling. We should go sometime. Um, and they said back as I was bowling, I was thinking about the spare room, which is, mm. you know, um, the lounge my dad owned that was attached to uh, his parents, my grandparents bowling alley. And I was like, Oh wow. Like, like that's a, this is a person that I only met in the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we met a while ago, but we've become closer with in the last year or so. But never, like, my dad was dead the first time we met. Mm-hmm. And they went bowling and thought of this because of the stories we've told and talked about. And I just thought that was so cool and, and made me proud of what we do and made me feel this kinship with Kirsten Johnson. And I was just so excited to watch the movie. And then the movie was incredible. Yeah. And I was actually just so... I, I loved being able to like see the connection and feel the importance of what we do in just a, a different through a different lens and that people there's it's nice and refreshing to see other people out there wanting to do similar work through different mediums that we're doing and that we can use their medium as fodder for our medium. <laughs> True. But I was just so taken aback by their approach to grief and how they chose to talk about it because i feel like grief is grief and loss is such a tender topic for everybody and how we choose to approach it like the fact that we all die is something we all know but from person to person it varies how willing you are to talk about that to acknowledge that and the way that they went about it i was just like wow like this is this is truly incredible and there's just like there's another layer added to it with the fact that Dick has dementia Mm -hmm. and there's little moments here. Okay. Emotionally even thinking about it, it's like one of the most real and like beautifully captured moments of just like him getting his car keys, like having to hand them over to Kirsten, just him reckoning with the fact that he won't be able to drive anymore. And like that he loves his car and that he's losing that. And she's just like, this is hard, isn't it? Like Just him acknowledging that. What a beautiful and heartbreaking and emotionally complex moment to capture on film and to put into a documentary. And I, 
I love that like Dick was just fully on board to do this with his daughter and have this be like such a lovely piece. And like another thing I really love too is like there's voiceover from Kirsten where she's just like in her closet because it's the only soundproof <laughs> space and she's just recording to her phone, but she chooses to capture that on camera. Like it's not, it doesn't just live as a voiceover. It's she wants to show her face when she's recording these little things that, and they could be little moments or little pieces that just come to her mind when she's doing something else. And she's like, I need to capture this right now, but she wants to capture everything about that moment, both visually and audibly. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I thought was so beautiful about this film is how she engages with her dad. And like, like you're talking about that moment where she just is like, this is hard, isn't it? Right. Mm -hmm. Like I just thought her approach to speaking to, like that's how we should all speak to each other all the time. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter what your relationship is, whether you're friends or strangers or a teacher or a sibling or a parent or whatever, like just, I recognize this thing that you're experiencing and I'm going to acknowledge that. And then you can speak more on it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and especially these moments where they're having this, that kind of a conversation and then she like drops the camera, but it continues to record. But then, but she like leaves her spot as the camera person to go and physically be with her father. Mm -hmm. Right. Are really, really beautiful. I don't, this is one that I definitely want to revisit. It's got so many layers. I loved that it, plays with humor realism fantasy and vulnerability there's a lot of really beautiful mm -hmm. like intentional fantasy moments but then they also show us the making of them <laughs> it's all yeah. just so it's a beautifully executed documentary yeah i loved it yeah i just like i've been thinking about grief a lot this week and like loss and family and stuff like that i can't remember who said it but i was watching a video this week i feel like the internet knew i was thinking and watching stuff about well, it does grief. listen to us yeah so it's serving <laughs> me stuff and i can't remember where it came from but it's this it was this piece from somebody that said by the time you're 18 you've spent 90 percent of the time that you will spend with your parents in your life please please and for the rest of your time together, it's only 10% for the rest of your I'd basically spend 100% of the time I was going to spend with my dad by the time I was 18. Yeah. And like I was thinking about like, I was thinking about that and like how both sad, but how beautiful that is in its own way. Why? Well, yeah. This has also been a real like griefy week because some people that like some family of which I am a part of. It was the one year anniversary of a really tragic loss in my extended family. And um, one of my cousins like wrote a really beautiful, vulnerable piece about it, which I read to you. And then also a former professor um, lost her dog really recently and wrote a really beautiful piece on, on that. And I found both of the things that they wrote. So like my cousin and my professor, former professor, both like so beautiful. And I was so appreciative of them talking about grief yeah like I and I reached out specifically to my cousin and, and you know told her that I was really moved by her words and then shared the Anderson Cooper podcast with her but specifically in what my um the professor wrote in losing her dog who was like had lived a full life I think she was 14 um I think in it it said like that we always knew was going to be brief mm. like you always knew that this was a limited amount of time 
And there's something like, of course, so sad about that, but also like so beautiful about it. Right. Like it's like in the film Pleasantville, <laughs> you know, at the end of Pleasantville when he's saying like, of course, we want things to be pleasant, but there's things that are so much better. Like um, he's a sexy and dangerous and brief. And when I've taught this film, I've always been like to my students, like, why brief? That's such a why is brief better than pleasant? doesn't feel like it should be. And we always have this really rich conversation about sometimes it's the fact that it doesn't last that makes it the most meaningful. Um, that's kind of the whole concept of Pleasantville. Like you, it, yes, it's very like simple and very obvious, but in Pleasantville it's never rained. And then when it rains and it thunderstorms, everyone's like freaked out about it, but then they get a rainbow the next day and you can't mm -hmm. get the rainbow without the rain. Otherwise it's just flat all it's, of the time. It's also like inside out shit. Like you can't be, you can't have joy all the time. No, you can't because if you have joy all the time, if you don't experience sadness, then the joy won't mean anything. Yeah. Right. And so there is something, of course it's all of us, I think want more time mm -hmm. with the people we the people we love and our, our little special animals and all of that. But I don't know. I was just really moved by things that other people were saying and we were having lots of conversations and this felt like, felt like the right film and, there's a really beautiful quote from uh, someone who reviewed the film named Alyssa Wilkinson that I think speaks to what you were talking about. So she said, quote, American culture fears death, hides it, tries to forget it's going to happen and goes to great lengths to stave it off. But Dick Johnson is dead suggests that learning to confront reminders of death, to even conjure them for yourself and examine them closely, takes some of the sting out of death and replaces it with love. And that makes me I think that's beautiful. It also just makes me think about Dick's poor friend <laughs> who played like the horn at And everybody's at laughing. Oh, but that, oh, that poor fucking guy just wanted to give him a hug. <laughs> I think Dick says, he thinks this is real. <laughs> you know, we, we kind of experienced a similar, um, my mom's side of the family has experienced a lot of loss in the last five, six years, mm -hmm. um, including a, like a loss, like, so in the episode that Kristen Johnson is on with Anderson Cooper, it's called anticipatory grief. Like when you know you're going to lose somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom's aunt, who is essentially our aunt, had cancer for a very long time. And then uh, she, uh, uh, doctor assisted suicide, is that assisted death? Mm -hmm. um, so she knew when she was going to die and she had a, a living wake. And it wasn't quite like in Dick Johnson. This is a different, <laughs> different thing going on there. Yeah. But I think more of us should do that. Absolutely. We should just have living wakes, even if we don't know we're going to die. I mean, I guess that's what like birthday parties and stuff are. But, you know, it was special that she just got to hear every, like everybody get together and tell her that they love her and tell stories together. And, and like know. with stuff like that, absolutely. You can't control how people are going to feel at those things. And people will feel weird or uncomfortable or people are going to like fully lean into it people are going to have fun with it and i th i think that's okay like i think that i would feel personally i would feel just so good gathering all of these like super important people in my life to hear what they had to say if they didn't want to say anything that's cool like i'll give you a high five like <laughs> that's sweet um there'd probably be a dancing component because i love music <laughs> so of course there'd be a lot of music at some point but I, that's, I think it's really beautiful that's what i love about this movie is this movie it's not all funny. It's not all play. It's not all fantasy. 
it's both because life needs both and like grief can have humor to it right like and it can have joy to it and it can have love to it and it can have silliness to it like that's okay and then it can have the tear like this week we both cried a lot in this movie but we also laughed a lot in this movie Mm -hmm. and i love that this film gives permission for that when it comes to conversations about grief that like it can be the gamut and you and I were we're grief people. We love talking about grief. Big time. We're big fucking sickos. <laughs> yeah. We just love grief. Yeah. We love grief. Um, but I think it's because we know that it you need to talk about it. It's so universal. And yet we hide it. Like like that quote said, we hide it, we get uncomfortable around it. We But you and I also like crying. So big time. Yeah. I don't know. This movie is absolutely beautiful. It's on Netflix, so it's like quite accessible um yeah, it's in the criterion collection so if you like you love it go buy a physical copy it's it's really really good and i've also heard phenomenal things about her documentary camera person which we haven't watched yet but i just like her i want to be her buddy yeah i really liked like i said i just love how she presented this documentary and i just think she has such a unique and beautiful voice and i everything about her i, I just want to i want to see more such a fan. This was excellent. Made me think about so much stuff. Great pick, babe. Thanks. I was really excited about it. It makes me happy when you end up liking it, too. And don't fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did Dick Johnson is dead make you feel? Moved in a complex number of ways. How did it make you feel? Astounded by this beautiful, funny, honest exploration of grief. Gorgeous. Okay. Last movie of the week. Um, and it was a biggie. Literally and metaphorically. Metaphorically? Okay, we're gonna get into it. Um <laughs> we went out to the cinema and saw the twenty twenty three action adventure drama film Godzilla minus one. It was written and directed, and the VFX were done by Takashi Yamazaki. And I'll pass it to Kylie to say the cast because she has a better cast list than I do and she'll probably say them a lot better than I will. So it stars Ryunosuke Kamiki as Koichi Koichi Shikishima, Minami Hamabe as Noriko Oishi, Yuki Yamada as Shiro Mizushima, Munaka Aoki as Sosaku Tachibana, Nidataka Yoshioka as Kenji Noda, Sakura Ando, love her, as Sumiko Ota and Kiranosuke Sasaki as Yoji Akitsu. It was so cool to see Sakura Ando show up in this because we love her from... Creative films. Yeah. She's ripping our our heart out here, there, and everywhere. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, babe. Uh, Synopsis. Post-war Japan is at its lowest point when a new crisis emerges in the form of a giant monster, baptized in the horrific power of the atomic bomb. Holy fucking shit, what a great synopsis that is. What do you think of Godzilla Minus One? There's a whole lot going on with this. The story of this movie for us. I wanted to start with saying that like traditionally I've said I I don't really care for monster movies. And I don't really care for monster movies when it's just like rawr, 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 monster. (laughs) Um, And I'd only seen Godzilla movies that were made by Americans. But earlier this year in the spring, we watched Shin Godzilla and holy shit, I loved it. Mm-hmm. So I was 
amped for this. Yeah. If we hadn't watched Shin Godzilla, I think you would have been dragging me to this. Right. But I was stoked. I was so ready. I'm really excited. There's a lot of stuff coming up. It's December now um, that we're busy in terms of family stuff, birthdays, Christmas related events. Um, lots of stuff with my school. There's an awards night. There's the school musical. Um, and then there's also like other films we really want to see coming out, like Poor Things, Hopefully All of Us Strangers, Eileen. And we really want to see this movie. <laughs> yeah, this is one of my most anticipated movies of the year. But we were struggling to be like, when can we see it? And it's that dance of when can we see it and also hopefully guarantee a good audience. That's the tricky part. Yes. Because of course we can see it any night. But we know that, you know, a seven o'clock show on a Tuesday is probably going to be a crap audience. Yeah. Cheap night brings out the riffraff. So tell the story of how we ended up going to see this movie on the night we ended up going to see this movie. Yeah, so it it was a Thursday night and we we were originally, before tickets became available for this, we were going to go see the film Go as a part of the nightclubbing series uh, at Metro Cinema. But it was at 9 p.m. We're like, that's a little late on a Thursday and we've been kind of busy. We're not going to go. But then they released tickets and it's Godzilla minus one was coming to Edmonton in only one cinema in the whole city. And I'm like, I want to fucking go on opening night. I'm so excited. So I bought tickets in my excitement. And then later the day, I believe that I bought tickets, our buddy Rich O'Coin, who we had on the show previously on a daddy deep dive talking about the film Beginners and who... We met last summer when we were in Halifax and immediately just bonded over movies. Yeah, we could. I think the three of us could talk movies to the end of time and not run out of things to talk about. Like it's it's just my favorite thing in the world that like we we not to bury the lead, but when we linked up with Rich, he gets in the car and immediately we just launch into okay movies. Let's talk about <laughs> what have you seen? What's what's great? Like and just so enthusiastic. Like we're. We're very much movie compatible from the stuff we like to even how we like to watch movies in the movie theater. But Rich reached out and he's just like, do you want to go to go uh, in Metro at Metro Cinema? Because we kind of forgotten that Rich was playing a show the following day in Edmonton. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't go because we just had, like Kylie said, a bunch of stuff going on. But him reaching out and asking if we want to go see a movie at our mo- favorite movie theater. We're like, well, yeah, of course. So I returned my Godzilla tickets because hanging out with Rich was going to be a richer experience. Uh, 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 uh. Um, but then as we kind of got talking and time and time went on, Rich was kind of like, he's from the East Coast. And he's just like, by the time we go to a 9 p.m. showing of Go and it gets out, it's going to be like 2 a.m. his time. And he's like, I don't know if I'm up for that. And we're like, how would you feel about... <laughs> 6.30 showing of Godzilla might as well. <laughs> At West Edmonton Mall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not like a huge like kaiju guy, but let's do it. So we go and pick him up. We take him to West Ed. And there's something really special. This really tickled my heart. Both of our hearts, I'd say, is that growing up and living in Edmonton, West Edmonton Mall, the, the spectacle of West Ed definitely begins to kind of wane yeah, we used to just go to West Ed here. to play Pokemon in the winter because you could like Pokemon Go in the winter because 
you could walk around and hatch eggs and shit. And it was easy. So going to West Ed is is nothing to us. Like yeah. it's just okay, let's pop over to West Ed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is something so precious about bringing somebody to West Ed who doesn't get to see it as often as we do and just seeing that shot like wonder of like holy shit, I got to take photos of everything. <laughs> the Lego store, the mini golf, the gargoyles. <laughs> The water park. Yoda and Batman is crazy. Can you imagine if the dragon was still around? Oh, mind blowing. Uh, so that was just like really, really special, really cute. But we were really excited to to get to go see this movie together. So we got to take our buddy Rich to go see this movie with, which was really, really nice. And I think that the universe recognizes that when the three of us are together and we go to a movie in the movie theater, we just have really great movie theater. Yeah. I was, I was so proud of Edmonton. The theater was awesome. Even like we've had a couple of really bad experiences with like just Cineplex running like a shit show. So like the movie started and they hadn't closed the doors. And so there was a big, like, like you could see the outline of the door on the screen. Yeah. And someone from the audience just went up and closed the doors. Yeah. And then I don't know if you saw Elliot Rich, like as he came up, he gave him a big thumbs up. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like the the theater was pretty full. And yeah, this hero gets up and closes the door. And then in any of the moments that there was silence in the film, it you, was silent. You could hear a fucking pin. Yeah, drop. no, it was awesome. It was the best Cineplex audience we've had in ages. And I was just like Thank you for showing. There's no lockdown. That's good. Um, thank you for showing somebody who's not from Edmonton that Edmontonians can communally watch a movie together somewhere that isn't Metro Cinema because that's Metro is almost always awesome audience, but Cineplex is almost never an awesome audience. Yeah. And so. then on top of that, it was also, I felt like I got the most bang for my buck for for a premium experience at, at Cineplex because we've been going to IMAX and been really let down by like the sound quality and in some cases picture quality on top of the audiences but like we went to AVX and it was the best sounding movie I had heard in a long ass time there there's D-Box in the theater but they're kind of far away but it adds like the rumble of it all yeah. which in a Godzilla movie <laughs> it was fucking good. worked so well. Yeah, it was cool. We we benefited from that distant D-Box. So that all was really great. That made that definitely enhanced the experience and made it really awesome and just made me really happy to go to a movie with a friend of ours and not have it be a shitty experience. Especially when like we almost never get to watch movies with this person absolutely right so it was it was great the film itself incredible fucking shit and all three of us loved it um and i think all three of us the more we sat with it the more we loved it rich especially he like reached out to us to be like changed my rating several times it's gone up and up (laughs) and up because just like reading about it and thinking about it it's it's just like it's incredible it's it's this beautifully human story that's also speaking to something important. Yeah. And through the lens of a Godzilla film. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I haven't seen the original Godzilla. You have. Rich has and really, really loves it. And he was speaking a lot to us about how he didn't remember the original Godzilla super well, but about how this clearly loves the original film and the intentions of the original film and is in line with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love when 
a medium that's not a straight drama can be smart. So I'm going to read a review from somebody. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm so excited to talk about this. I, I'm, I'm struggling to where I'm going to start. So okay, <laughs> go this for is, it. <laughs> um, this is from a Letterboxd uh, reviewer that I believe we both follow named Matt. Um, this is his review of Godzilla. Oh, you're reading this one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Two films now in 2023 have dared to examine the fallout and societal implications of World War II's nuclear exclamation point. One, a hard-hitting social drama chronicling years in the life of a man broken and haunted by his own failure to prevent the darkness and devastation that enveloped the world following the introduction of the atomic bomb and the inadvertent opening of a door to an endless plague of hopelessness and destruction set upon future generations. A film which truly encapsulates that sheer power, abject terror, and subsequent futility that humankind was forced to face in the wake of its own unimaginable creation. A story told through the eyes of determined engineers, scientists, and soldiers gathered in the name of nationalism to nobly save their culture and civilization as they knew it from the raw, monstrous horrors to which they had borne witness, and an ambiguous resolution to the inevitable humanist clash between blind optimism and bleak reality. Two, Oppenheimer. Personally, I kind of prefer the one with the giant fire-breathing sea lizard that eats battleships and levels cities. <laughs> um, Man, you read that to me on the way home and that bait and switch. I'm like, you got to read that again because I didn't <laughs> see that coming. And I, But I just think, you know, when we saw Oppenheimer and recognized the craft, appreciated things about it, but felt uneasy about just the perspective that a film on the atomic bomb was coming from, and, you know, if Christopher Nolan's going to make a film about the atomic bomb, this is like Martin Scorsese making a film about, you know, the like the murder of Osage people. Yeah, the, Christopher Nolan probably should approach it from an American lens. And Martin Scorsese probably should approach it from the white male lens. Like, I, I but I just, I, I was craving, not craving, that's the wrong word, but I, I was wanting the other side of the story. Mm -hmm. And so after we saw Oppenheimer, I was like, I want Japanese media and Japanese art that is exploring the trauma and the legacy of the atomic bomb. And I love that this is this is the other side of the coin. Yeah, to, to get, Oppenheimer. To get it in the same year too, like fuck off. So good. It's like, incre it's incredible. I think... I think it's better than Oppenheimer. Um, it objectively is. <laughs> <laughs> and is like very complexly, but at the same time, kind of subtly exploring the fallout from the atomic bomb. Yeah. I mean, okay, I'll, I'll try to organize my thoughts here. From This just went from one of my most anticipated movies of the year to one of my favorite movies of the year. I put in my letterbox review to what you were just talking about. Like Toho is greater than Chrissy. No, no. <laughs> um, so Godzilla has always kind of been a representation or a metaphor for the atomic bomb and nuclear war and the effects of that. And that is not lost here, but in keeping with stuff we've been talking about this week, I don't think I've, and granted I haven't seen every Godzilla movie, but I haven't seen as affecting of a representation of Godzilla being a representation of grief, mm -hmm. um, which is manifested through the character of uh, Koichi and like his grief and how much that is wrapped up in this monster on top of everything else this monster represents and what it and what it is doing. 
the trailer for this movie is so powerful and it just has this line in it of post-war Japan had lost everything from zero to minus. So, and as the synopsis lays out, like Japan is at its lowest point after the war. And then it, and then Godzilla is introduced to the, is brought into the equation. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, like how much more can these people endure and what can they take on? And it's heartbreaking. And it's so it's so effective and to have that all coming from a monster movie is immensely impressive yeah this was just the story like on a literal level was beautiful and engaging the story on an allegorical level was complex and important yeah the score fucking rips so powerful holy shit I mean, Rich is a musician, and he said this is the best score he's heard this year. Yeah, it's it's like, amazing. He pays close attention to score. The effects were awesome. Yeah, and we talked about this on the car ride home, like the three of us, that it felt like they were trying to emulate and evoke the original Godzilla. Um, and yes, I read confirmation of that. The goal was to like be reminiscent of the quote "man in a suit" while still being like a powerful and strong visual effect and mm-hmm. I think mission accomplished. Um it's just I just I loved it. And like also just the characterizations on point. Like this is a this is a people story on top of everything. And like this is set even in the years before the original Godzilla happened. Mm-hmm. So it's the earliest in the timeline of Godzilla, the Godzilla's history. And the characterization is so good and it's quite literally has the idea of found family infused in this grief like, and found family. Yeah. Just bring on the tears. And there's just an element of this. Like at one point, this movie is just fucking jaws. Like, <laughs> and of course that's going to work for me. Like a bunch of guys on a boat doing a thing. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. And just like people banding together to live as opposed to being sent to die. Well, this is so beautiful. This film, while it is, you know, particularly in the year 2023, it's the other side of the coin to Oppenheimer and for my money, the better side of the coin. Um, When you look at it as a pairing with Shin Godzilla, like they're both exploring very similar thematics, but through very different lenses. One is we are with the government as they make decisions that we as an audience are livid about. Mm -hmm. And this one we're with the citizens. Yeah. And they're set in very different time periods. Mm -hmm. Um, and the characters are experiencing very different things, but I think that they are definitely within the same like thematic content. Yes. Um, and I really love that because there's, there's such different experiences mm-hmm. and yet they're both so phenomenal. Um, Yamazaki talked about how he like what he wants from these new Japanese Godzilla films is like, he talked about it as like a shared universe akin to the MCU, but I don't think they want to be like just a money making machine. I think that what he's saying is like these films that stand on their own, but are also part of the same universe, but they're not like beholden to each other as like sequels and prequels. It's its its own film right. that exists in the same universe. And I really like that idea. Um, I also like, do you know that this premiered on the same day that the original Godzilla premiered on? Yeah. I think that's, 
awesome. Like I love that. I, I just, I love the story of this movie and I think that you can feel the love for making this movie. Um, Gareth Edwards, who directed the 2014 mm. American one, have you heard what he said about it? Yeah. <laughs> Quote, this is what a Godzilla movie should be like. <laughs> yeah. And he just like was watching it with just like je- pure jealousy. Yeah. Um, because it's superior. Well, I don't know if you, you, you might've read this, but like, I have not felt great about America's kick at the can with the Godzilla stuff, especially of lately. Like I was really excited for that Gareth Edwards film and we went and saw it and it really did nothing for me. And I really didn't connect with any of the characters. And I feel like that is the, that is the thing that makes a Godzilla movie like minus one. So good is the characterization. But I guess that Toho had an agreement with Legendary yeah. that they wouldn't make a Godzilla movie until after 2020. And I think that part of the agreement is they can't release them. In, like if an American one is coming out, a uh, Japanese one can't come out in the same year. Yeah. And Legendary can just frick off at this point, I think. Yeah. Clearly Toho's doing a better job. Um, and, and, it you, should, and it should stay with Toho. This yes. Is, it's from Japan. Keep it in Japan. And it's about... The atomic bomb <laughs> should be. I mean, I don't think the. I mean, I haven't revisited the American ones, and I haven't seen many of them, but I don't remember them being about that, even on a th- like an allegorical level. But I could be wrong. Yeah. I mean, you were most astounded by the budget. Um, yeah, fifteen million dollars for this movie. So on Wikipedia, it talks about how this is ten percent of the budget of the most recent American Godzilla, Godzilla versus Kong. Ten percent of the budget. Yeah. And to have a movie that fucking looks this clean. Sounds this good. And the effects are that incredible. And you're getting fucking, I would argue, some like Oscar worthy performances from some of these people. It's incredible. It reminds me of like an everything everywhere all at once. That- Here's my bid for um, I want Godzilla minus one to win everything at the Oscars, not Oppenheimer. <laughs> 100%. It's, it's incredible. I mean... It goes it goes so hard for such a small budget, and when you look at the budget of the Marvel movies and yeah, these other like these American Godzilla movies, and the fact that like I think this took like four years to make, so they clearly it was a labor of love. Like this is the most bang for your buck that you could get for a fifteen million dollar budget. It's so much movie for fifteen million dollars. It's amazing. It's so much meaningful movie. Yeah, I mean you can just feel the love for it. I mean, a couple of things I want to mention um, that the director has said, one of the things that he said, uh, Yamazaki said about the difference between how American films and Japanese films explore Godzilla is he said in the American films, Godzilla is a monster, but in the Japanese films, Godzilla is both a monster and a God. Yeah. And that like, that's a tonal shift. And then I just want to read what he said about making and, and him making the film and other people experiencing the film. So he said, quote, Obviously, it's a translation, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, Post-war Japan has lost everything. This film depicts an existence that gives unprecedented despair. The title Godzilla Minus One was created with this in mind. In order to depict this, the staff and I have worked together to create a setting where Godzilla looks as if fear itself is walking towards us and where despair is piled on top of despair. I think this is the culmination of all of the films I have made to date and one that deserves to be experienced rather than watched. I hope you will experience the most terrifying Godzilla in the best possible environment. Uh, nailed it yeah. for me like, absolutely watch it on the biggest screen with the best sound because it deserves it 
It's incredible. 100%. And you could have seen no other Godzilla film and go see this. 100%. And it would be a great starting point. Absolutely. I I fucking loved it. It was one of my favorite of the year. One last thing is that what I really love about this specific design of Godzilla is that he has a really small head, really small face compared to the rest (laughs) of his body. And it's kind of cat-like. And it just really reminds us of our cat because our cat has a very small head, very small face. There's a couple of moments where he's like trying to catch a plane. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, it's just very it was very well frightening also cute well, when That's he was a, in the water he kind of looked like thompson when thompson's getting ready to like pounce on something yeah <laughs> yeah um there's just so many like heart-stopping moments for me in this and the fil- the filmmaking is so smart and so well crafted and there's beats that like you could read it as like hammy or predictable but it just it fucking works like it's just classic slam dunk cinema so sincere yeah um it got me so excited and i i i hope that this gets an even wider release and that more people are because it's only playing in one theater in our city right now i hope that more people get an opportunity to see it go see it on the biggest screen that you can within your means it's fucking awesome godzilla minus one for best picture (laughs) You heard it here. Uh, how to make you feel? It made me feel blown away by this emotional yet thrilling allegorical counterpoint to Oppenheimer. You yeah. just completely floored by its immense power. Let's talk about dads. Okay. Who is your bad dad? I picked Doctor Caligari. So from, did I. From nineteen <laughs> from nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, from nineteen eighty nine. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought both of them are bad dads, but specifically <laughs> Dr. Caligari from 1989. Yeah. So not Captain Dr. Caligari, just Dr. Caligari. <laughs> correct. Correct. Uh, I mean, yeah, she's conniving, unethical, unprofessional, is operating from a place of selfishness, and it's overall nasty. <laughs> what, about, what about you? Anything add, to add to that? Um, I just have a quote from the film. Oh, excellent. Dr. Caligari has crossed the line between radical therapy and outright human experimentation. That's why she's a bad dad. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> she's bad, 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 bad. Fun to watch, but bad. bad, 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 bad. All right. Dr. Caligari. Don't, don't be don't, your, don't, don't don't be be your dad. dad. He's your red dad. I know we said we weren't going to do this, but I picked Dick Johnson. Yeah. I was like, that was like my number one choice, but I'm like, we said we won't. We do said this. we wouldn't pick real people. I know, but I did anyway. Okay. I feel like maybe we can if it's a rad dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, go on. I just I don't, there's just this willingness to engage with his daughter on the level that she needs that will be beneficial to them both. But I think something that I was so moved by by him as a human and he's also a dad in all of these moments with her is he has this levity and this kindness, but he's still always honest. And like willing to show vulnerability. Yes. Like that willing to be willingness to be vulnerable and honest, but also to be like mindful that he is her parent when he can. I mean, there's this beautifully heartbreakingly sad moment where she's leaving um, to go out of the country and he, he says like he's going to miss her and he's, and he starts to cry and she says, are you, are your eyes just watery? Are you crying? And he says, I'm going to miss you. And he starts to get really emotional. And then he says, I'm like your little brother. Now I'm your little brother and your dad. And like, 
you know, through all, obviously he has dementia and there's moments where she very explicitly talks about the ethics of this. Like she's where she's like, I don't know if I should be doing this anymore. Is he able to consent to this still like he could at the beginning? But I just feel like in the moments we see in the film, he, he is, he is very aware of himself as her father. And yet he also has this vulnerability that he doesn't hide from her. I don't know. It's just like, I want that from everyone, but I think that we especially need it from like men. And we especially need it from dads. Like, yeah, I know dad is an energy, not a gender, but in the specific like moment of speaking about a real father, we need that from like the real dads in the world. Yeah. And like in showing this honesty and this vulnerability, a willingness to lean in as opposed to turn away. Um, super important i mean like that's that's gonna take it for me but i'll I'll share mine okay just because it's the whole it's the whole name of the game here um but i chose jasper from children of men michael Caine. yeah i get it i get it i get it uh i mean like he's trying to live the best life that he can with his family his chosen family and he has a fatherly care for theo and by extension the people that are immediately important to theo uh in his life and he's willing to help and he's willing to stick his neck out for the people that he loves. And he's also just revels in this silliness and ridiculousness. And I also, it's not, and again, this kind of speaks to just the, the mastercraft of this film is that he's painted as like a reflective person because we're shown just glimpses of his past and like where he comes from. But over time, how his mind has changed and how his look on his view of the world and his outlook on life has shifted over time too through reflection. And I think that that is really, truly important, especially for a dad. But I, I love putting Dick Johnson in there. He was my first choice anyway. So uh, more than happy to have Dick Johnson be the dad. Dick Johnson? Be our dad. dad. Okay, sweet. We're going to hit you with a rad wreck before we dip out. Uh, Favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema, has been getting a lot more events aside from movies lately. So previously we went and saw John Waters live at Metro. But just this past week we got to go see Josh Thomas, who is a creator and all-around hilarious person of one of our favorite shows, um, and that's what we're going to ride wreck is his show. Please like me. Uh, seeing him live is kind of surreal because we, we, we've watched a couple of his shows. His other one being, um, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And he is ex He's an excellent person to follow on Instagram. Very funny. Super hilarious. And seeing him live. It was such a fun show. It's called tidy up. If it's coming anywhere near you, highly recommend it. But Please Like Me was just a really special show. I think it only ran for like a couple seasons. It's four. But the characters are so great. It captures such like a specific point in your life, like specifically your 20s when you're still trying to like figure out your shit. And it has like, has like Hannah Gatsby in it and his friend Tom, who I believe plays a character called Tom. Yeah. And he was a co-writer on it, I believe. Yeah. Some awesome food shots, if if that's your jam. Uh, and he's just like this lovely little Australian boy with ADHD and autism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
which weren't diagnosed at the time of that show, but nonetheless, just so heartwarming and heartbreaking at times and hilarious. Highly recommend checking out. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere anymore. It was on Netflix for a spell. I'm not sure if it's still there, but seek it out. Please like me. Get into it. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Uh, like I mentioned off the top, go listen to our rad rap uh, on John Waters, a masterclass in filth. You can uh, follow us and sign to our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in their show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these children of dads this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.